who's the Savior of all creation? Jesus. Who's the Redeemer of all things? Jesus. Oh God, you are the Savior of all things. And you said that you will redeem all things. You're the King among all kings and the Lord of lords. You are Jesus. You're a good God. You're an awesome God. We worship you this morning. Amen. So, Jesus, we ask that you would help us to preach this morning and that we would hear your good word to us and that we would come to believe that you are always better than we thought. And it's in your name we pray, saying amen. Hey, so, you know, I realized while I was sitting here <clears throat> that um, today is the one-year anniversary of me coming on to uh, staff here full-time at the sanctuary. That was the... <laughs> no, no um, and it... I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about how God has brought Robin and I here, and what a miraculous story it is. And I thought this might be an opportunity to begin by just sharing a little bit about our heart, what brought us out here. I don't know if you all know this story, but uh, Robin and I met at Princeton Seminary um, maybe like 10 years ago now, and we were both going to school there, and at the end of our time at seminary, three days later, actually, we got married, and I began to pastor a church in New Jersey. It was a small community church called Hope Presbyterian Church, and they were a great group of people. And, um, and I was there for maybe like four and a half years or so, maybe around there, five years, and um, no, about four and a half. And, and while there, initially it was just this really exciting time for us and for me personally, getting a chance to pastor a church and explore new ideas and really find my sea legs and learn how to preach and care for and and uh, I, I felt called to ministry my entire adult life, but now it was all coming to fruition, right? There was a lot of work to be done and a lot of exciting things happening. But I noticed that over time, about two years, a year and a half into my time there, I started to experience a bit of isolation and began to struggle with some depression. Some of that was... Um, related to the context that we were there. Like the, the church was a little community church, but it was on the outside of any community, right? And there was no real neighborhood that we were part of or connected to. And we lived on site there. And so I didn't have it. We didn't have any neighbors, right? And there wasn't any center of town that we could go to to hang out and connect with people, et cetera, et cetera. And we also just were having a hard time developing deep friendships that felt real mutual and life-giving and um, I remember at one point talking to Robin and saying, hey, what if like, we were going through a tough time in our marriage? Who would we reach out to and talk to? And, um, and everyone we came up with, all the names that we came up with, uh, were distant from us and living in other parts of the country. And that's no, nothing against the church that we were part of, but that was just the reality of our life at that time. So there was this existential experience of isolation and disconnection that was uh, emerging in my life. And then along with that, Robin and I started doing a lot of thinking and praying and reading and theological reflection. And we were, um, God was really 
revealing some neat stuff for us. And, and then we were looking around, around at the landscape of the church in, in, uh, in the world, in, in the United States, and we were asking these questions like, uh, I just noticed that more often than not as a church or as churches, we have tended to do church pragmatically. And by that I mean we look around at the world, at other models. We look at what seems to be successful, right? And usually we define success on the basis of what seems to be growing, numbers, right? Or financial health or other contexts like that. And we, we, we d- define those, those communities as successful on that basis. And then we say, well, if that's working for them, maybe it will work for us. And so we tend to go and take those models and appropriate them for our lives and our context, regardless of context, regardless of how um, the gifts and abilities and talents and culture and the environment that those ministries were born out of and were, were experiencing fruitfulness. And we we took those models and we take them and we make them our own and we replicate them in our own life, right? And so that's what I mean by we tend to do church pragmatically. We think what works and we try to appropriate it for us. And I began to reflect on what would it look like to do church differently, not pragmatically, but theologically, where we ask the deep questions. We ask questions about who is God? How has he made himself known to us in Jesus? What does he have to say to us and to the world that we're being sent into? And if those things were true, if we really lived as if those things were true, then what would our life look like as we gave expression to that, right? How would we order our life together, our common life together in a manner worthy of that gospel? That living, uh, I like to call it living theologically. Does that make sense? So we started to dream about that, and um, as we began to dream, it felt like when we were looking around, we were like, well, it doesn't look like we're, we're quite seeing any reflections of that, at least that makes sense to us, the, that uh, are born out of our own heart, and so we decided maybe it's uh, time for us to try to create a community like that, a community that lives theologically. And so that was, is what actually brought us out to Denver. And two years ago, we moved out here and uh, with an idea, dream of potentially starting a church. Not that we felt like we had to start a church in and of itself, but it seemed like that was the way to get to the, the dream that we were longing for. And then, so we were well into the process of that, and then we got to know, I got to know Peter and Susan and Francis and Robin got to know Francis through another we started getting connected to people here at the sanctuary and we came and visited a few times we're like whoa I mean this is crazy Uh, do you guys all realize what's going I remember thinking that like listening you know Peter when he started preaching he's got a pretty quirky style right and and he gets going and then you're like okay wait a second oh is he doing what I think he's doing oh he is whoa like and then I start looking around going, do you guys realize, like, what's, what he's saying here, right? Come on, right, Nate, right? And, um, and so all of a sudden, we're like hearing a theology that resonates with us. This is what we believe, right? From day one, we're like, this so fits with what we're dreaming about. And it, could it be? Could it be that, and then um, we started having conversations about, with um, the leadership about what it might look like for us to come on board and do kind of what we were dreaming about and ask the questions about, okay, how do we take 
this deep theology, this theology of grace and God's relentless love for us and his goodness that he speaks into the, the world in Jesus, right? And how do we live it out? How do we put flesh to that message? And that's what I was brought on to help us explore together. And it excites me because um, here is like we were thinking, man, do, like we were going to have to create this thing from the beginning. And then here it already was. And then let me tell you this. And then we got connected to our house gathering, what we're calling house gatherings, our small group. Um, because for me, much of my vision for what church would look like would take um, shape in little groups of people gathering together in each other's homes, seeking to live together, live life together, and seek the benefit of their neighborhood together. And it would be an expression of church that would go beyond just Sunday morning and that we could be a part of a community that says so much of our life, 90% of what we do as church happens outside of the building that we gather to worship in, right? And that's what we were dreaming about. And then we met some friends and they, um, and they just kind of resonated with us and they reached out to us and they had been going through uh, their own troubled time, like they had experienced some trauma in their own fellowship. And, but out of that, we're really galvanizing together and, and really recommitting themselves to exactly those themes that, that we want to live our life together in a living fellowship. And we want to commit to each other and to commit to others. And we want to commit to the sanctuary and we want to do it all together. And so um, they invited us to participate in that. And I realized later, whoa, we were thinking we would have to, that I would have to create this if I wanted it. And yet we show up at the sanctuary and we are invited to participate in it. It was amazing. Um, so I want you to meet my friends. And I was going to do this video promo during announcements, but I thought, oh, I'm going to weave it into our sermon. So would you play that? You tell me something. I really love um, the ability for everyone in our group to not be afraid to hear my struggles as a woman and a wife, and um, I feel very supported in that. I can yeah. bring, I can say anything. Like I could say some crazy shit, and people would <laughs> they would take it and they would listen to me and they would hold me in that in those moments. And I that's huge for me because I like to say crazy shit. <laughs> <laughs> That's, a, that's my group of friends, um, and they're all scattered. I mean, some of them are here right now going, oh my gosh, Tyber, what are you doing? Uh, but they're, they're, like, they're a part of our church, and we are living out church together, and we're asking questions. I mean, deep friendship is forming, and we're asking questions. What does it live, look like for us to live theologically, live out what we preach every week here on Sunday morning and put it into practice in our lives and it's just a, a really rich and exciting time for us. And, and I just feel like God gave that to Robin just as a gift. Here, here's a free gift. You thought you, you thought you had to make this, and look, I've already made it for you. And I'm starting to realize that it's not our job to make church, that Jesus, through his spirit, is the one responsible for creating his church and founding it in his life. And, and so I want to reflect with you on what that might look like. Um, well, one thing I would say is last week is a great example of what that might look like to 
live theologically, right? We're preaching into this theme of the party, and, and then all of a sudden, we give birth to a neighborhood event that's uh, uh, an attempt to bless our neighbors. And in doing that, we experience the blessing as well, right? So the, the party that we're going to be doing every year, that's a way, a concrete way in which we're living out our deep theological convictions. Let me share with you another um, uh, passage that uh, might reflect a little bit more on what it looks like to live theologically. And it comes from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. And it's commonly known as the feeding of the 5,000. Did you know that this is the only miracle um, that Jesus performs that shows up in all four of the Gospels? So that says to me, we should be paying attention, okay? And let's explore together what it has to say for us. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place, and the hour is... Uh, is now very late, send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish he, he looked up to heaven and he blessed and he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled and they took up what was left over uh, of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were, were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, that looks like a pretty great party to me. And um, an amazing one, a miraculous one. And there's so much about that passage that we could talk about. I love the themes as kind of eschatological vision for the future and where all of human history is headed. I love the social message that comes through how it's really up to us to really care for um, God's creation, God's people, feed the hungry, right? But what I want to focus on this morning with you is I want to look at, I think this is a really interesting model for how Jesus gets his life into us, right? How he um, extends uh, his life to us. And, and he does that through, first, did you notice how he gets them to all gather together in groups and sit down together, right? And then he does something fascinating. He he takes what the, the meager offerings that they have, five loaves and two fish, right? And he takes those, that offering and, he, and he, he takes it and he blesses it and he breaks it and then he gives it. And so I think that that right there is a paradigm for how we are to view our own life together in our living fellowship as we gather in groups together. What God, what God is going to do to get his life into us through Jesus, okay? And here I'm relying on a, a guy by the name of Henry Now, and he's written very extensively. He wrote a book called The Life of the Beloved, where he explores what it means for us to see ourselves as God's beloved, God's children. 
And uh, in that book, he, he um, structures it along the same paradigm of, of, of taking, blessing, breaking, and giving, right? And so I want to use that as a paradigm for us to explore what it looks like to live theologically. The first then begins with what, what it means that God takes us. Or maybe a, a kinder or gentler um, or appropriate way to talk about this is that God chooses us and that he chooses everyone. This is something we've been preaching for quite some time now, especially as we look through, as we've been going through the sermon series on Ephesians, right? You remember at the beginning when it says, you were chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. And if you pay attention to Peter's preaching and mine and others, you'll hear this theme again and again and again that before you ever considered choosing him, God chose you in Jesus. That at the, at the core, at the foundation of all of creation is this primary choice, this primary yes that God makes, that God chooses in himself to be the God that is for us, for you that he chooses you, that it's, and that it's his choice that defines you and your life, and no one else. Now, now in highlights why this is important when he says this, long before any human being ever uh, being saw us, we are seen by God's loving eyes. Long before anyone heard us, we are heard by our God who is all ears for us. Long before any person spoke to us, in, in this world, we are spoken to by the voice of, the, of eternal love. Our preciousness, uniqueness, individuality are not given to us by those who meet us in clock time, our brief chronological existence, but by the one who has chosen us with an everlasting love, a love that existed from all eternity and will last through all eternity. Do you hear what he has to say? They, when we say that God takes, Jesus took us. He took the bread. When he takes, he, he's, he's living out his election that he, he chooses you. And he does it perfectly in a way that the world cannot fully replicate. For the world, we live in a world that sees choice in um, combative or, or um, conflicting terms, competitive terms. Remember when you were chosen, last chosen for the kickball team? Or last chosen for the dance? Remember when you were chosen and not chosen while you watched others be chosen? See, it always seems like the way we work out choosing in our lives, in our world, is that to choose one is to choose them over and against others. That there's always, when you're including some, you're by definition excluding others. And yet Jesus, when he looked over the crowds there, he did not look at them through eyes of competition. Did you, did you notice that in that passage? He, he looked at them with compassion. And God's choice is always a compassionate choice, and God does it perfectly in love. And so for him to choose, it doesn't mean he excludes, but he's always including, always including Everyone. He's able to see all of us for our unique selves. 
And his choice then is worked out in a unique way in all our lives. And in all of us, then we can reflect back that infinite love that chooses us and chooses the world. At the foundation of the world is a yes that God says to all creation. You were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. What that, then does that mean for us to live that out theologically? Well, let me just suggest to you this. When you begin to realize that it's not your choice that is decisive, but his chi- choice for you, then you start to realize grace. And grace, as it pours over into your life, produces gratitude, thanksgiving. That's why Paul in Ephesians says over and again, give thanks in all, for all things in every time, every place. Give thanks always. And so I'd suggest to you that as we experience God's grace poured into our life, we're called then to respond. The way we can live theologically is to uh, practice a discipline of thanksgiving. To say thank you again and again and again. Thank you, God, for what you're doing and how you're working, even when I can't see it. And you know what's great? Because that's true, right? We can't always see it. But what's great about being a part of a community that's practicing this together, as we gather together and sit in groups together, is that we can then call out God's deeds and his work and his word in such a way that we remember all the things that he has done. Remember how he's constantly telling Israel, remember my deeds, remember how I pulled you out of Exodus. And why does he have to do that? Because we tend to forget, but when we are part of a community, we can remember together. And so we can highlight all the ways that we see God choosing his choice borne out in our lives, and we can give thanks to him graciously, uh, his gracious work in our lives, and we can respond with gratitude. I would suggest that thinking, living theologically, remembering God's primary choice is to uh, practice a posture of thanksgiving. But it doesn't end there. Because we also see that Jesus doesn't just take the bread, he blesses it. So what does it mean to be blessed? Why, and why does he do it? Now, the word for blessing has its roots in saying something good, saying, declaring something good, good speech, right? Henry Nouwen, again, has a good insight here that I want to highlight. He says, to give someone a blessing is the most significant affirmation we can offer. It is more than a word of praise or appreciation. It is more than pointing out someone's talents or good deeds. It is more than putting someone in the light. To give a blessing is to affirm, to affirm, to say yes to a person's belovedness. And more than that, to give a blessing creates the reality of which it speaks. I love that, and I think he's on to something, although he doesn't go into this in that chapter, but that idea that when we speak a word of blessing, not only we are refer, um, reflecting God's primary yes to other people, but we are also helping to create reality. And this makes sense, because words have power. We may not think it today, but they do. The words that we use have power. You know, the Hebrew word for word is dabar, and it can both mean word and also deed. And that makes sense, right? When we look at the founding of creation, God spoke a word, a good word, into existence. He, and, and he spoke a word, and all of creation was born. 
brought into existence. He, that word had a way of affecting and creating reality. And that word we're told in the New Testament is the living word of God. Jesus embodied, God's living word embodied, made flesh in our reality. That when we look to Jesus, we see God's word and God's deed, which are one in action. God, his life actualized in human history. And it's a, it's a good word. God is better than you ever thought. And the love of Jesus is deeper than you know. And the Spirit is everywhere working wonders of mercy. And so when we participate by speaking blessing on one another, we're participating in that created life that God is doing, that new creation, that recreation, um, that bringing into existence all creation. So the problem then is that more often than not, we don't seem to hear that good word. We, we, we don't seem to hear that word of blessing, that belovedness that, that, that a father says to a child, which we were reminded the other week, that a child that has no intrinsic moral worth, right? Other than that they are the child of the father. We tend to not hear that word. In fact, we tend to hear a curse. We tend to hear a whole bunch of curses. We look around at the devastation of our lives or the devastation of the world, and we're so in, uh, easily convinced by the lie that says we, you are cursed. And we say that that must be more true, more true than God's good word of belovedness that he speaks into our lives. So how do we live in a, in a context where, where we are constantly hearing the curse? How do we hear the blessing, and I would suggest to you, again, it, it works best when we're a part of a community that is gathered together, sit down together, and experiencing God's blessing on us, his word of blessing to us. And one of the ways that we can counter the falsehood of the curse is by speaking the truth of God's blessing into one another's lives. And one of the best ways we can do that is through prayer. Right? Where we hear God's good word spoken to us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I pray, oftentimes I feel like one of two things. I either feel like I'm just spinning my wheels and I'm not hearing anything. Right? Or I come to God with a whole laundry list of things that I would like him to do for me. Or, you know... But you know when I, uh, and all that stuff tends to crowd out then my ability to listen attentively in prayer, to hear God's good word of blessing. But you know when I hear it the best or the most clearest? When I'm with a community of people that are praying. And when I experience other people praying for me. Or when I pray for other people. You know what I'm talking about? Because when I begin to pray for someone else, I begin to see them and hear, I see them as God sees them. And I hear what God has to say to them. And so, do you see how God's good word of blessing comes to us through other people? That's why it's so important to be connected to a living fellowship of people who are willing to sit down in groups together and pray together. Because then we begin to counter that narrative of curse and live into, live theologically, live into the fact that God has not just chosen you, he's also blessing you. It's hard to live that way, though, because we we're so very aware of our brokenness. 
And we're so very aware of the brokenness of the world that we live in, everywhere. I mean, we were just praying about that this morning, right? Syria, or our own lives. We look at the, the tragedy that seems to be running rampant, the loss of a loved one, the, a divorce, you name it. We've experienced that pain and that suffering, right? And, we, and everybody knows intuitively that there's something inside of all of us that's a little bit broken, right? In fact, quite a bit broken. So here's the, the challenging word of this passage, and that is this, that it may be that not only does God choose us and bless us, but he also may give us over to brokenness. He also may break us. Because the fact of the matter is that for us to hear God's yes to us, we also need to hear his no. That God must confront all our ideologies, all our false theologies, all our attempts to justify ourselves, to save ourselves, to defend ourselves, to make ourselves. For he is the one that justifies, saves, defends, and creates. And when we believe that it's us that does it, that we create our existence, God has to say no in order that he can say yes. As Karl Barth likes to say, the no of God is the husk of his yes. It's the deep yes that says you are loved and you are worthy and you are precious. But it also acknowledges, and yes, you've also been broken. Do you hear that? Because what I mean by that is when we preach a message of grace, that message also then by definition must take sin very seriously. That we are all broken. And that we are all, in, that we are all lost as we explored last week. And that we are all in need of saving. That no one is righteous. No, not one. And it might just be the fact that God has consigned all to disobedience. That he might have mercy on all. And this, it too, is for a reason. Listen to now and when he says, our brokenness reveals something about who we are. Our sufferings and pains are not simply bothersome interruptions of our lives. Rather, they touch us in our uniqueness and our most intimate individuality. The way I am broken tells you something unique about me. The way that you are broken tells me something unique about you. That is the reason for my feeling very privileged when you freely share some of your deep pain with me. And that is why it is an expression of my trust in you when I disclose to you something of my vulnerable side. Uh, can we begin to dare to be acknowledge that we are broken people in need of grace? How do, and, and could it in fact be that God is a part of doing some of that breaking in order that he might give us, right? So how do we live this theologically? Uh, how do we take uh, sin seriously and grace even more seriously? Well, it's like something I preached a few months ago when we talked about confession. Can we dare to be sinners, right? That when we gather in fellowship, life shared together, and confess our brokenness to one another, that then is there when we begin to experience most God's gracious work of restoring and healing us in our woundedness. Do you know, have you ever been a part of a community where you can be honest with others? 
You can share those deep places of shame and, and then look into eyes that are not filled with condemnation but are filled with compassion, the, the same compassion that looked over 5,000 people that were hungry. When we do that, when we confess to one another, we begin to experience the blessing that God has for us as he graciously works out our healing together. That confession is another way that we live together theologically, right? And it's not just for our own sake. We're not just broken for our own sake that we might be then healed and know the gracious love of God in Jesus. It's so that we might be given. Jesus took bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and then he gave it to the, his disciples to give to those that were there hungry. Could it be that God is using even our brokenness, even our wounds, even our sin, even the places that we were most ashamed to give himself not just to us, but to others? We were made to give of ourselves. Now it says, what a wonderful mystery this is. Our greatest fulfillment lies in giving ourselves to others. Although it often seems that people give only to receive, I believe that beyond all our desires to be appreciated, rewarded, and acknowledged, there lies a simple and pure desire to give. Our humanity comes to its fullest bloom in giving. It was so neat that when I was uh, hanging out at the block party, I got to meet one of our neighbors, and I've gotten to know him over time. And, and he was then later on sharing about not only how neat the block party was, but just he's involved in a, a foundation, a charity that he'd love to do stuff with our church about. And, and then he said something interesting. He said, people really do want to give. They just don't know how. They don't have the conduits, the ways to do it. And I think that's true. I think that there's something in all of us that really wants to be of, of benefit to others, uh, to live for something more than just ourselves. And I think we experience that best when we gather in communities that are centered around Jesus, where we experience not only his choosing and his blessing, but also that he, as he breaks us, he also gives us, gives us, and not just our gifts and our talents, as we oftentimes focus on, but our very selves. You were made to live not for yourself, but for the sake of others. And your very life is a gift, something to be given to others. How do we live that out? I don't know, I really don't. I, except I have a feeling it has something to do with believing the gospel. Believing, faith, trust, trust in what Jesus says. Trust that he has the capacity to take your five loaves, my two fish, the meager offerings of our very lives, and multiply them. As he blesses us and he breaks us and he gives us, is it possible, is it, is it fathomable that he could be multiplying us and feeding 5,000, feeding the world? What does it look like for us to believe the gospel, believe the impossible possibility of salvation? I think it happens best when we, and I just am convinced of this, when we do it together. When together we are on a mission, where we seek, we get, we get together in living fellowship, 
And we ask uh, this question, not, what does it look like for us not only to seek the benefit of ourselves, but seek the benefit and the blessing of our neighbors? And who, however we're to define that, that God is in fact building his church, that he's calling us, he's gathering us, he's building us up, and he's sending us into the world. And that it's not my job or your job to make that happen. He's making that happen. So this puts me like in like quite a bit of a quandary <laughs> because part of my role here at the church is to find ways in which we can do just that. Those structures that will help us meet together in each other's home. I really want, like one of my deepest dreams is that the, at the core of our church, the backbone of it would be our house gatherings where we meet together in living fellowship, committing our lives to one another and asking what it looks like, where we're praying together and asking what it looks like to seek the benefit of others. And yet I don't know exactly how that works. It seems like when it does happen, it happens almost by chance. God makes it happen. And you might be sitting here going, I want to be a part of something. I want to experience that kind of, and every time I've tried it doesn't seem to get going, or I don't know how to do it. Well, here, let me give you a couple different options or a couple ways that you could think about what it might be look, look like to live out what we've been talking about this morning. Downstairs, we have a sign-up sheet, <laughs> and it's for house gatherings. And, it, and if you are, like, desiring to be a part of one of those uh, a house gatherings that would meet regularly for a period of time, say, three to four months, and explore what it might look like to have Christian friendship uh, on a regular basis where you live life together and you commit to praying for one another, then you can go downstairs and sign up for those. And I will look at those sheets and you put your information in your neighborhood and I will see if I can help facilitate making that happen. In fact, one of the ways that, that if you need some structure, you can participate in reading through the community Bible experience. This is the books of the Bible, the New Testament. This is the New Testament right here. And it's been redesigned uh, where they took out all the chapters and verses and, and reorganized the, some of the um, books of the Bible in the New Testament so that they read more smoothly, more like a narrative, and then they came up with all these questions for groups to participate as they read together and just, I love this. So our group um, has gone through this in part, and we love how it's so great to read the Bible together and read it with the lens of the sanctuary. All the preaching that Peter has done over the years, it's great to be able to put that lens on as we encounter God's written word that, um, that he gives to us through the New Testament, right? And so that's a, a possible way for you to get connected in one of these groups, is go down, sign up, and we'll, make, uh, we'll create some groups that have a goal of reading through the New Testament together, and hopefully that will stimulate some connection. But let me give you another suggestion. Rather than going and signing up for a group, why don't you look around you why don't you think about who are your friends here at the sanctuary? Or who are the people that you have affection for or that you're interested in or that you want to know a bit more about their story? Maybe God has been all this time bringing people into your life that you didn't even quite realize, that you weren't tuned into. He says, I want you to share life together with these people. Rather than thinking about all the shoulds of the ways in which these groups should function or how they're supposed to or what you're supposed to do in the midst of them, 
Why don't you ask the question, who is God connecting me to right now? And then have the courage to then go to those people, that person, those people, and say, hey, you know what Andrew was talking about? Would you kind of like want to do something together? We could maybe talk about what that would look like. I think that would be amazing, actually, if the, all these organic groups begin to spring up all over the place and God just builds. The, the, God just says, go, sit down, gather together, sit down in community together. And all we ask you to do is to do this. Let a, you define how you want to structure your group and, and when and where you're going to meet. And we just ask you to commit to meeting regularly together, praying for each other together, and living life together, right? And then let us know. Pick somebody in your group that can be a point person, a contact person, and let me know that you're doing that, that you're fellowshipping together. And if you need some support with resources or other ideas, I would love to come and connect with you and, and give you some suggestions. I, all I know is that it seems to me this works best when it just happens, like it happened for Robin and I. We live, we're part of a group that meets every week, and we're scattered all up in Evergreen and down in Sloan's Lake area. That's 30 minutes away. And yet we always, we rotate our, where we meet each week in different people's homes, giving everyone a chance to uh, give the gift of hospitality. And everyone owns the group together, and we're committed to each other. There's no one leader. I'm not the leader of a group. Ask our group. I'm not the leader of our group. And, and we just have chosen to, like, we want to raise our families together and, and share life. And, and, and we're asking the question, what does it look like to care about others? And it could look like that, or it could look like something else for you. And if you have something already that you're already committed to, I'm just glad to know that you're a part of something. I just want you to be connected. Jesus looked out on the crowds with compassion and then how, and he saw that they were hungry. And how did he address that hunger? He said, get together, gather in groups, sit down together. And he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave his life and he fed them. And that's what we do every morning when we gather on Sunday, is we gather around that table that he called his disciples to. And there we're reminded of how Jesus imparts his life to us, how he gets himself into us. Through a meal shared in fellowship, a group of people who have come together around him and have and committed to share their life in living fellowship for his sake. And so on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it, giving thanks. And he said, and he broke it and he said, this, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he poured it out and he said, this is my blood poured out, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And we call this table communion because at, com at communion we re we're reminded when we take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup, we're reminded that we are participating in his life. We have communion with him, Jesus Christ, the living Lord. And he says that I will come into you 
Your life in me, my life in you, participate in it and share in the sufferings of my death and resurrection, but also share in my resurrection. And so this morning you're invited to take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. The white cups are juice, the dark cups are wine. This table is for everybody. You do not have to have your act together to come to this table. In fact, it's probably better if you confess that you're broken. Because God's going to use your brokenness in ways unimaginable. He's going to take your meager offerings, your five loaves and your two fish, and he's going to multiply them to bless other people. We believe that. Let us live it. In Jesus' name, amen sitting here going, okay, this is great. I really want to be connected to a group, but I don't know people yet. I don't know what to do. Uh, I'm kind of interested, but what? Help me, Andrew. Well, first of all, if you are interested in either one of our, in our, in a, being a part of a house gathering, we have some general information in the back on your way out. Grab that, and that'll speak to you a little bit more about whether you want to sign up to be a part of one or help facilitate creating one with your friends. And then I will provide you more material later on what I think makes for a good house gathering. But if you're like, I'm not ready to be a part of a house gathering and I don't really even know anybody, we also have what we're calling neighborhood gatherings and they're just kind of different topical classes and other kinds of specific interest groups that uh, there's also general information in the back. Or you could go downstairs to find out uh, some more specific information about those kinds of groups. And I just think that they're just... Um, but not only are they topical, but they're just a great way to begin getting connected and developing friendships. And I just want to commend them to you for this fall. Um, and one last plug, if you want to just hang out with some people and have some ice cream, we're headed down to the Little Man's after church. So we can do that together too. It's all good because I'm just so convinced that it's Jesus who builds his church. Not you and it's not me. Okay? So let's live in that grace and that freedom. And let's live out of that theology. Let's say that, you know, God is better than you thought and that the love of Jesus is deeper than you know. And the Spirit is everywhere working the wonders of mercy. And so we're called to get together in groups and thank God and pray for one another and confess to one another and believe the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. Go in peace, everybody. But wait, don't go yet. Uh, oh, and there's prayer, there's prayer warriors up here if you need prayer. And what else? And yesterday was Santino's birthday. <laughs> so we're going to sing happy birthday to our good friend, Santino. Ready? Here we go. Hold on. Happy birthday to you. Ha <laughs> ha.